I want to start this morning with a question, a question of what do you live your life for? What do you live your life for? If you think about what drives you, what, what motivates you, what leads you to make the decisions you make, what's the common denominator in your choices, what is it that comes to mind for you? Maybe for some of you, it's your work. You live for work. You live for succeeding in work and being a success. You live for a promotion or the security that comes from your work. You live for people recognizing the way you make, you have accomplishments at work. Maybe for some of you, it's your parents. You live for making your parents happy. You live for uh, making the choices they want you to make, choosing the school you, they want you to go to, playing the sport they want you to play. You want to see them happy with you. Maybe for others of you, it's your husband or your wife. It's your boyfriend or your girlfriend, your significant other. And you live for making them happy, making them comfortable, making them flourish. Money, retirement, fame, school, friendships, yourself. What do you live for? It's not an easy question. Um, it's actually, it's a, it's a really hard question, but it's one that I think comes up out of the series pretty naturally because in this series we've been thinking about what it means to live for the sake of the world, to not live for ourselves or our own desires, but to live for something bigger than ourselves, to live for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news which says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and on the third day he was raised. The good news that says that if we have faith in Jesus, we can have life, that we will be saved. But there's a challenge for us as we think about what it means to live for the sake of the world. And the challenge, I think, today is that If we're going to live for the sake of the world, we have to recognize that the gospel is worth giving your life for. The gospel is worth giving your life for. Giving up whatever it is that we've lived for in the past, whatever it is we say is important to us, whatever it is that is this driving motivator of our lives, the gospel is worth giving that up. The gospel is worth giving your lives for. Embracing the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see that this morning. If you turn with me to Acts 20. Acts chapter 20. And uh, we're going to jump in to verse 17. And so as you're turning there, um, we're, going to be, we're going to be looking at um, a story of Paul. And Paul at the time is finishing up the very end of his ministry. Actually, this is the, the final moments of what is known as Paul's third missionary journey. This is the, the close of Paul's time as kind of this itinerant preacher in, in Asia and Greece. And so Paul, we see um, Luke, the author of Acts, very kindly gives us a lot of Paul's travel itinerary just before this. And we're going to kind of skip past that part. But what we see is that Paul is leaving Macedonia, which is in the north of Greece, and he's going by ship back to Jerusalem. He's going to go meet back up with the people in Jerusalem, with the the church in Jerusalem. And so along the way, he's decided they're going to make a stop, 
and they're going to stop in a town called Miletus. And the reason they choose Miletus is that it's very close to the city of Ephesus, where Paul had spent a vast amount of his time. He actually spent three and a half years founding the church in the city of Ephesus. So the people in Ephesus, the Christians, the believers, they, they were his best friends in some ways. These were people he'd spent three and a half years with, living alongside of doing life with these people. And now he's going back by Miletus. He's going to call the Ephesians to him because this is his chance to say goodbye. This is his moment to say goodbye to his friends. And so here's what we see. Acts 20, starting in verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Let's read 24 one more time. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul's only aim, his only aim, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. His only aim is the good news of God's grace. And Paul lived his life for the gospel. He gave his life for the gospel. We see this play out over and over through story after story after story in the book of Acts where we see Paul's ministry. And it goes even further because, it, as, it knows, as Luke notes, that Paul is going to Jerusalem. And he knows that in every city the Holy Spirit warns him that there's prison and hardship waiting for him. Now, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to accuse Paul of being untruthful here when he says that I don't know what is waiting for me. But I will say that Paul probably has a relatively good idea of what is waiting for him in Jerusalem. Because what we see is that the last time we'd seen Jerusalem in the book of Acts was Acts 15 with the Jerusalem council. The leaders of the church all came together and had this meeting and Paul gets sent back out after this meeting. And nine years have passed between Acts 15 and Acts 20. And in those nine years, things have changed for Christians in Jerusalem. Right? As if things weren't bad enough already, they've somehow gotten worse. And so what we know is that in the nine years since Paul left, Matthias, who, who was um, the apostle selected to replace Judas, he's been martyred in the city itself. He was attacked by a mob. They stoned him. Um, they got impatient. Stoning him was taking too long, and so they beheaded him. And then Peter, 
who's been kind of this leader of the church in Jerusalem, he gets arrested, beaten, whipped, set free. He gets arrested again, beaten, whipped, set free. The Christians in the city have started to realize that this is not really a safe place for them to be. And so most of them actually have left Jerusalem altogether. Most of the Christians have fled to the city of Antioch in the north, which is a little more accommodating to Christians. And so when Paul says, I don't know what is waiting for me in that city, it'd be like him saying like, look, I don't know. I don't know what for sure is going to happen. But all of my friends who do this, what I want to do there, all the people I know who are doing this stuff, they keep getting killed. So, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, but yeah. Paul has a pretty good idea of what's facing him when he gets to Jerusalem. And he still chooses to go. And as I was thinking about the sermon today, I was convicted by this because Paul says in his letter to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And the thing is, Paul is following Christ's example to a T. Like you, it would be very, very hard to follow Christ's example more clearly than this. Because as we see in the Gospel of Luke, which Luke wrote both Luke and Acts, right? In Luke, about halfway through, what we see is that Luke describes Jesus as having resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. Knowing that what was waiting for him in that city was death on a cross. And here in Acts 20... We see again Paul resolutely is setting his face towards Jerusalem. Knowing that in that city, maybe it's not for sure that he will give his life for his faith. But the odds are pretty high. And what we know is that in the end, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. He was attacked by a a mob in Jerusalem. He survives that by being grabbed by a bunch of Roman soldiers who then try to beat him in Jerusalem. And he survives that by appealing to Caesar, by being sent to Rome. And then in Rome, after all of that, he's beheaded for his faith. And he fulfills the words of Jesus who said, "'A servant is not greater than their master.'" If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And Paul gave his life for the gospel. Paul was not the first person to give his life for the gospel. Um, Not even close. In fact, Paul had actually overseen making sure other people gave their lives for the gospel along the way. And he was certainly not the last person to give their lives for the gospel either. What we know is that since Paul's death, there's an estimated about 7 million Christians who have died for their faith. 7 million of our brothers and sisters in Christ who died because they believed in Jesus. 7 million of our brothers and sisters who've given their lives for the gospel and said, just as Paul did, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race. Sorry, finish the task and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. They gave their lives in a variety of ways. Some of those stories recount people, Christians, who would go into places that were stricken with the plague. 
They would go because they knew that God had called them to share the gospel with these people, even though they knew that if they went, they would end up succumbing to the same disease. And they went anyways. There's people who some gave their lives to speak out against injustice and evil in the world. People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany or Ignacio Eacuria in El Salvador. People who recognized that the world was not working the way that it was supposed to and said something about it and got killed for it. And some, just like Paul, they gave their lives as martyrs. They gave their lives being killed because they refused, refused to worship other gods or idols or give up their faith, renounce their faith in Jesus. My parents, they named me after one of these many martyrs, um, Justin Martyr, who, um, first of all, that's a really cheery way to pick a name for a kid. But anyways, um, they named me after Justin Martyr. um, And Justin Martyr, he, he was arrested for his faith. The Roman prefect arrested him and six other Christians in the city of Rome where he was preaching the gospel. And they, he arrested him and he ordered them to make sacrifices to the emperor. And Justin and the other Christians, they refused. And so the Roman prefect said to them, if you do not obey, you will be tortured without mercy. And Justin and the Christians replied, do as you wish for we are Christians and we do not sacrifice to idols. And then the prefect took them as a group and he beheaded each of them for their faith. My parents named me after Justin Martyr in part because Justin has this relationship to to loving justice, but also in part as a reference to Justin Martyr and this first Christian thinker, early Christian thinker who gave his life for the gospel. When my wife told me she was pregnant, um, I had a whole lot of feelings. I'll just try, yeah, there's a whole lot of feelings. Um, I was really excited and then really nervous and really excited and really nervous all in the span of like three seconds, right? And um, when I get nervous, I tend to do this thing where I fixate on something. I'm sure there's other people like you who do this sort of thing. So I fixate on one little thing that really isn't related to the whole bigger, pro- bigger scenario, right? And so when my wife told me she was pregnant, my mind was like immediately snapped to, what are we going to name this kid, right? This is what is critical in this moment is that we decide right now what we are going to name this future child, okay? And so as Ryan said that to me, I, you know, smiled, like smile. Okay, I'm happy. Got to make sure I express that. And then you can ask her. I'm sure she'll be happy to mock me for it. I like got up and I jumped over to our bookshelf and I grabbed off of the bookshelf a book, which is called Fox's Christian Martyrs of the World, okay? And now you can imagine the look in Ryan's eye when she said, I'm pregnant. And I said, yay, hold on. Let me grab this book really quick. Okay, let's talk again, right? And so I, we sat down and I, I wanted to flip through the pages of this book and, and look for names for what would become our son. And uh, Ryan was really kind. She obliged me for a moment before mocking me enough to get me to stop. But in this book, John Fox wrote the Book of Martyrs in 1550, um, or he started writing it in 1550, and he set out with the goal of recording as many of the stories of the martyrs that he could. 
He wanted to record the stories of the people who had given their lives so fully for the gospel. People starting with Jesus at the very beginning and going all the way through the Christian persecutions under Bloody Mary in England in the 16th century. Over a million martyrs are recorded in this book, some by name, others just by deed. But in it, you find the stories of people who gave their lives for the gospel. The stories of people like Perpetua, which is what Jude would have been named if he was a girl, so he got lucky on that front. Um, But Perpetua, who, as far as we know, was at least close to being one of the first women martyrs. She gave her life in the arena in North Africa where, where the Romans took her newborn child from her and threw her into the arena to be killed by animals for her faith. Stories like that of Lawrence, who, who said the gospel was worth giving his life for. And when ordered to, uh, to abandon his faith, bow down before the emperor, and worship him, Lawrence refused and he was arrested. He was placed on a gridiron gate and he was suspended above a fire until he met his end. Stories of people like Polycarp, who was arrested for being a Christian, was taken to this big stadium in Greece. And the Romans there, they said, abandon your faith, give up your faith, renounce Jesus, and we'll let you live. And Polycarp said, in this massive stadium with crowds all around him, he said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my Savior and King? And then they burned him alive in the stadium that day. The stories in this book go on and on and on for 1,500 years of the church's history. Talking about the million plus people who gave their lives for their faith up until that point. Justin Martyr, Perpetua, Lawrence, Polycarp, Jude, and millions of others followed the example of Paul and of Jesus before him and said, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And we see these stories And I think they move us, right? We can't help be moved at some level by these stories. And there's probably a lot of reasons for that. Maybe just as people, we we like to hear stories about people who give their lives for something bigger than themselves, right? It reminds us of like Braveheart or something. But I also think that, for myself at least, These stories move me so much because they're stories of people who have come to trust what is probably the most radical claim of the gospel. They have come to trust Jesus when Jesus tells them that if they want to find their lives, they'll have to lose it. If they want to hold on to their lives, they'll end up losing them, right? They trust that the gospel of Jesus is enough. These people from Paul to Perpetua through all the martyrs, they embrace the gospel to its fullest, trusting that by giving their lives for the gospel, they would find the abundant life that Jesus had for them. 
And Jesus says this very thing to his disciples in Matthew 16. And uh, it's going to be up. It's going to be up on the screen here. But Jesus is talking to his disciples in Matthew 16, and it says this: 16:24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, "Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul?" Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is why the stories of these martyrs, of these people who have given their lives for the gospel, moves me so much. is because they have embraced this crazy teaching of Jesus. This teaching that, that seems so counterintuitive. They heard Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me, and they did it. They heard Jesus say, give up your life for me. And they did it. They heard Jesus share these radical ideas. And they chose to give up their lives and live for the gospel of Jesus. And there's this amazing moment in Jesus' ministry where um, he's, got, he's starting to get this big and growing crowd around him. He's starting to get popular He's starting to get attention. And people think they've found the Messiah. And they're right. But they're confused about what the Messiah is. And so they start to think, this is the moment where Rome is going to get overthrown. This is the moment. This Jesus guy is going to establish the kingdom of Israel. We're going to be more powerful, greater. Like, this is our chance to get in on the ground floor. And then Jesus shares this hard teaching with them. And it says in, in John chapter 6, verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. The crowds all leave. And then Jesus turns to the twelve and he says, You don't want to leave too, do you? And Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter believes wholeheartedly that he has found life in Jesus. He believes that he has found an abundant life in Jesus. And the thing I want us to see is that at this point, Peter already gave his life for the gospel. It would be another 30 or so years before Peter was executed for his faith. But even in John 6, he's already given his life for the gospel. Right? Because Peter was a fisherman. He had a whole life as a fisherman. And then he met Jesus and he gave that up. He already gave up his life for the gospel. Paul is the exact same way. When we see Paul in Acts 20 meeting with the Ephesian elders, he's already given his life for the gospel time and time and time again. It's not just about a one-time thing that Paul decided. He didn't say one time, I consider my life worth nothing to me. He lived his life as if he considered his life worth nothing to him. He lived his life as if the only thing that mattered to him was the gospel of Jesus. We see in 
2 Corinthians chapter 11, um, Paul takes a moment, and he's kind of embarrassed by it, it seems, but he takes a moment to brag about the ways that he's already given his life for the gospel, right? So we'll see 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23, example after example, the way that Paul gave his life for the gospel. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Paul's decision to follow the leading of the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, it's not just because it's a one-off decision. It's not because Paul has a death wish. In fact, Paul's very explicit in a lot of his writings that he wants to continue to preach the good news, the gospel of Jesus. But it's because he was committed to something other than preserving his life. He embraced what Jesus had said that if he wanted to hold on to his life and preserve his life himself, he would lose it. But if he gave his life for Jesus, he would find an abundant life greater than he could ever imagine. If we're being honest, we can hear that, and I think we all want to resist that being true, right? Our natural inclination for every single one of us is to preserve our lives, right? We want to fight to preserve our lives. For example, if you, if you just take a breath really quick and you just try then after that to stop breathing, right? You'll feel your body start to fight to make you take another breath. Everything about us pushes us to try to preserve our lives. And Jesus is saying, give up your life and you'll find a greater life than that. Live for the sake of the world, live for the gospel, and then you'll find life. Since Jude was born, I've learned of this new phenomenon called being overtired. Um, and this is, this is new to me for real. Um, and so the way it works is that Jude and myself sometimes, but mostly Jude gets so tired that he no longer wants to go to sleep, right? He gets so tired, so exhausted, so just done with his day that you actually can't get him to sleep anymore. Which is, which is so counterintuitive and frustrating, right? Because what that means is that Ryan and I have to try to put him to sleep 
And in so doing, he's just kicking and screaming and crying and yelling and fighting as hard as he can not to go to sleep. And Ryan and I get left trying to put him down and trying to explain to him, Jude, just go to sleep. Like, your life will be better if you just go to sleep. The other day, we, we took Jude to Disneyland for his birthday, and we, we really got to experience overtiredness at a whole new level. And so we bought him a couple toys. We bought him this like little light spinny-up toy, which then we left in our car for a ton of time afterwards anyways, but whatever, right? It's cool, right? Ooh, okay. We bought him a little balloon. Uh, not a little balloon. It was a giant Mickey balloon. I'd have it here, but it's died its slow little balloon death already. Um, and we, w- we stayed up l- late for Jude, and we watched the Paint the Night Parade, okay? And so if you don't know what the Paint the Night Parade is, um, it's a nighttime parade with lights, lots and lots of LED lights, okay? And bright lights and crazy music, and there's people dancing in Pixar costumes and whatever else, right? It, it's basically crack for babies. And so Jude... You can imagine Jude kind of sitting there in his stroller, um, bouncing up and down with his little toy like this in one hand and his balloon in the other, and he loved it. It was like the greatest thing he'd ever experienced. But the parade started at like, I don't know, 9.30 or something. Paige Clenny could tell me what time it actually started, but I'm not going to check right now. So, But the parade started kind of late for Jude. By the time it was over, it was really late. By the time we got out of the park... It was later than that. I mean, we're, we're talking like, oh my gosh, it was the crack of dawn in my mind, but it really was probably like 10, 15 or something. But, <laughs> and so we have to take Jude home, and he's in his car seat, and he is so done. He is so tired, right? And he's holding on to this little toy in his car seat, and I can see in my rearview mirror, I can see him in his seat, and he's so tired that at one point, actually, he's like rubbing his eyes with this toy, right? Like... <laughs> desperate for sleep. And we get him home, and he doesn't want to give up the toys, right? He doesn't want to give up the things that he's just angry now that we're taking things from him. He's angry that we put him in the bath. He's angry that we're putting him to bed. He can't understand. He's just so tired. And we're just saying to Jude again, just go to sleep. Just let go of the toy, let go of trying to stay awake and go to sleep. And when Jesus says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it, he's saying that we're like Jude. We're holding on and fighting against the very thing that is actually going to give us life. We kick and we scream and we yell and we throw tantrums because we don't want to let go of the things that we think are going to give us life. The things that we have made up in our own minds will give us security and comfort. That will give us confidence in our future. And Jesus is saying to each of us, let go. Let go. Go and trust me. Instead of trying to hold on to your life, 
give your life to me. And when you do, you will find the abundant life that Jesus has for you. The gospel is worth giving your life for. And when you do, you will find the life that Jesus has for you is far greater than the life you're trying so desperately to hold on to. And so as we close, I want us to think about one last question, which is where in your life do you need to stop holding on to your life? Where do you need to stop trying to preserve your life? Where do you need to stop holding on to the thing that you think is going to give you life, that you've created as this, this idea? And where do you need to start focusing on furthering the gospel? Where do you need to start focusing on furthering the gospel? Where do you need to be like Jude and let go of the toy, stop fighting sleep, and trust that Jesus has what is best for you? To recognize that the gospel of Jesus is enough. Maybe for some of you, Jesus is saying, it's time to let go of all the time you invest watching TV, watching Netflix, watching Hulu, whatever it is. And it's time to invest all of that in the gospel. Maybe being a life group leader, serving in some way. Maybe Jesus is saying to you, it's time to let go of the money you spend on things that you need and to use that money to further the gospel. Maybe for some of you, Jesus is saying, it's time to let go of this idea you have for your future or your kid's future. And instead of making them play soccer and baseball and hockey and all the other sports and go to chess club and have their tutoring program, maybe you need to let go of that and give that time to the gospel, to blessing the people in your 8 to 15. Maybe some of you will start to say like Paul, I consider my life worth nothing to me. And when you do, you will find that God starts to call you further and further and further. And the next thing you know, he's calling you to go. To go like Heidi and Taylor to go like Tammy Armstrong, to preach the gospel in places some of us have never heard of, to people who have never heard the gospel before. Maybe some of you today 
you're hearing Jesus call you to let go of your old life for the first time. You're hearing Jesus say, let go and trust me for the first time. And so now is a chance for you to find the abundant life that Jesus has for you. And I pray that this isn't the case, but I do think that if we as a community live for the sake of the world and for the gospel, it's bound to happen eventually. But maybe some of us will find ourselves in a position where we have to make the same choice as Paul. Or Perpetua or Lawrence or Justin Martyr, Polycarp, and we'll find ourselves in a position to say, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my Savior and King? I don't know what it looks like for each of you to embrace Paul's words to his friends in Ephesus. I don't know what it looks like for you to give your life for the gospel, to stop holding on to the things that you think will give you life here and instead embrace the things that will give you the abundant life that Jesus has. But here's what I do know. The call to give your life for the gospel is a call for each and every one of us. None of us, not a single one of us, gets to squirm our way out of that call. It doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are. Jesus' Jesus's call is the same, to take up your cross and follow him. And so we all have the challenge of thinking about what it means for us to live, not for ourselves, but for the sake of the world. Where in your life do you need to stop holding on to life and start focusing on furthering the gospel?